Father, we want to know right now that you are in our midst. We want to know that you are our God. We want to know in our hearts and minds there is no other God but you. We want to know, Father, that we will never be put to shame again if we are in Christ Jesus. Father, we ask that you would bless us this morning with the presence of your Holy Spirit in such a profound and powerful way that we are able to leave here with the hope of heaven that you would give us a picture, a true picture of your Son coming in glory again, not just to judge, but to restore completely. I ask, Father, that you would magnify yourself and glorify your name in making yourself known to us. Brothers and sisters in covenant community here at Cambrian Park Baptist Church. We know that knowing you is to have eternal life, so give us eternal life now in Christ. Let us rehearse well the wedding feast of the Lamb. As we pray and we sing and as your word is proclaimed, let us worship you rightly. You are so worthy of it not only because of the blessing that you pour out, but because of who you are. You are God, and there is no other. Make yourself known to us this morning that we might be a people truly set apart for you in this very dark place, in this very dark city. Bless your remnant here that we might bring you honor and glory all our days in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. I'm very thankful you are here. I pray that you'll be able to stay awake. It's one hour. It's one hour. I mean, I can see if they set it back, you know, if we had to do that for five hours, I think we'd all be stumbling. It's one hour, my beloved. I think we can do that. I do. I think that we're stronger than that as people. Um, it, it was providential that on this day where we, most of us lost an hour or more of sleep that I get to talk to you about the glories of heaven. If this does not keep you awake, if when I talk to you about what Christ is going to do when he comes and what is in store for you, I don't know anything that will we, uh, we have a very strange cultural moment taking place right now. I mean, there's, a, there's a paradoxical movement in our own culture here in the Western world. From an economic standpoint, our standard of living is unmatched in human history on the scale that it is today. Virtually every sector of life, housing, food, healthcare, leisure, entertainment, life expectancy, technological advancements, we 
we are living in a time and in a place in this valley that is truly unprecedented in human history. And yet, in the midst of all this prosperity, there is a pervasive awareness of our internal brokenness. We are blessed in many ways beyond measure, historically speaking, and yet in many ways there is this deep dissatisfaction and this sense that something is still horribly wrong. I can get in my car and and drive to the grocery store and I can buy meat without slaughtering a cow. I can take it home and put it onto a propane barbecue without building a fire. And then I can go upstairs and I can, I can take a shower if I smell like smoke from the barbecue without finding a source of water. This deep satisfa- dissatisfaction is there in the midst of our prosperity. And it's a satisfaction that cannot be satisfied with the next Marvel movie. It will not be satisfied with the next iPhone. It will not be satisfied with that $15 cup of coffee that you buy. Yes, you know. As a culture, I think that we're very much like the prodigal son in Luke 15. We have taken our father's inheritance and we've squandered it. His wealth on reckless living. So, the question is, will we as God's people be swept away with the culture or will we as God's people have the sense to come back to our Father? In Luke 15, the prodigal son did. Father, he says, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now I want you to listen to the response of the Father in this parable because it is the response of God the Father to the people in Judah and the response of God the Father to his church for all eternity. Listen to this. The father responded to his son. He said to the servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put on a ring, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and he is found and they began to celebrate. This morning, we're going to see God respond to his prodigal son Israel in this exact way. And by God's grace, you will see that this is your reception too. For all who return to Him, for all who go back to God with all their heart, this is the reception that God brings. He was so gracious to send a locust plague on His people in the days of Joel. He sent that to wake them up. They were in sin, and they were in rebellion, and he wanted them to come back to him. And so he calls them. He instructs the priest in the temple to say, come back to me with all your heart. And they did. They did. Last week, we left off wondering, were they going to listen to God? Were the people going to gather in the temple? Was the priest going to pray the prayer? Was he going to cry out for mercy? And he did, they did, and God responded. His response is so over the top. His response gives us a glimpse of heaven. Just as the locust plague was a foreshadowing of the judgment to come upon all mankind, this response by God the Father to restore his people in that day is a glimpse of what it's going to be like for you, my beloved, if you are in Christ. 
for his church on that day when he comes again. The blessings that will come. It is in God's creation, fall, redemption, restoration story that we started this series off with. Today we get to talk about the restoration. What will it look like when God restores all that is seen and unseen? What does it look like when he brings his glory to earth? And what does that mean for us? I want to dive back into this passage. And I want you to see what awaits you if you have returned to God your Father in Jesus Christ. I want to do that by three ways. I want to, I want to show you that God is jealous for you and He is quick to have mercy for all those in Christ. And what is He going to actually do? Three things. One, He will return to His people, He will bless His people, and He will dwell with His people. Our returning to God in Jesus Christ means that God returns to us, God blesses us, and God dwells with us. And this is not just an immediate promise. This is the promise forever and ever and ever. By the end of this sermon, if the Holy Spirit was pleased to take the preaching of this foolish man and bring it to your hearts and minds, you will be jumping for joy. You'll be doing somersaults out of your seat because it is so over the top. It's so over the top that if you do not believe it in faith, you will reject it because you'll say, it's too good, it's too much. And I do believe that's why many say it cannot be true. Number one, he promises he's going to return. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land. This is after they've cried out to him. He became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. Verse 19, the Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I'm sending to you grain and wine and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. The people had returned. The priests had prayed. They said in verse 17, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. And here we say, God says, I'm jealous for my people. I'm zealous for my people. I have pity upon them. I have mercy upon them. And so what does he do? He answers their prayer. The priests prayed out and cried out for God to have mercy. And God answered to their prayer, and he said, Behold, I'm sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And now you say, Oh, I know the grain now. They needed the grain and the oil for the grain offering, and they needed the wine for the drink offering. And that, was, that came together every morning and every evening as the burnt offering put together with the unblemished lamb. This was their worship. This is how they came back into a right communion with God. And God had supplied that. He sent the grain. He sent the oil. He sent the wine so they could what? So they could worship him again. So they could come back into church and they could sing again and they could pray again and they could have God as their God and they be the people. Incredible blessing. They were able to present their offerings in faith. And God was able to, again, as a holy God, re-engage a sinful people because that sacrifice every morning and every evening, every unblemished lamb, every grain offering, every drink offering pointed to Christ. The Father knew that. And so he was entering into a relationship with them by his grace through their faith in the blood of the lamb to come. They didn't know it at this time, but the Father did, and it was sufficient. His return meant for them they could worship God. And in worshiping God, they would what? They would be 
satisfied. They'd be satisfied. You say, well, why would they be satisfied in worshiping God? Because that's what they were created to do. That's what all mankind is created to do. Your purpose is to worship God. So how glorious when that can happen again. And how grievous when that stops. Their greatest grief, if you remember, the gladness of their hearts had dried up because they could no longer worship the living God. But now, he says, I'll be satisfied. They'll be satisfied because God has returned. They'll be satisfied because God has enabled them again to worship him correctly. Most of you don't know this. When I was younger, my father traveled a lot. Before we moved to California, we lived in Washington. He was on the road about six months out of the year. It's a lot when you're little. Um, my mom did an amazing job flying solo during that time. We, we lacked for nothing. But as a son, I missed him when he was away. There's something not right about the mom and dad being in the house together with the children. And so when he would return, there was a great sense of peace and joy and satisfaction. Nothing had changed. Same house, same bedroom, same food, same clothes. But dad was home. And with dad present, there was satisfaction and there was joy. This is what God the Father says he will do with those who return to him. He says, my presence with you will satisfy you through and through. Right now we're pilgrims sojourning in a foreign land. And our hope is set upon the promise that God will send Christ and reunite us. When Jesus was explaining to his disciples that he had to be crucified and die and then rise from the dead, they wanted to go with him. And they were concerned that he might not come back. Listen to what he said to them to ease their conscience about the separation. John chapter 14, In my Father's house, Jesus said, are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go, now listen, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. Sinners, saved by grace, God says, I will send Christ and he will get you and we will commune together forever. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and sinners saved by grace for all eternity. God was right. He says, you will be satisfied. We will be satisfied. He said, I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. How was he going to do that? How was he going to do it for Judah, and how will he do it for us as church? Point number two, he will bless. He will bless. If you remember from last week, God had attached his name, the glory of his name, to the well-being of his people. His people were in dire straits. The judgment had brought devastation. It had brought a plague. It had brought a drought. It had brought death. So how is God going to glorify his name by restoring his people? He gives them three means of restoration, and all three of these we long for. In our heart of hearts, we want each of these in our lives right now, and we certainly want them for eternity. 
God says, I'm going to glorify myself by blessing my people with three things eternally. Safety, harmony, and plenty. Safety, a security and peace, harmony between God and man and God's creation, and plenty, blessings upon blessings. Let's look at the safety first. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things, great as in horrible things. So Joel, we know, is referring to the locust plague. I mean, we know that. But if this is pre-exile, then he's also giving the people of Judah hope and what was going to come because the Assyrians would come in 729, and the Babylonians would come in 586, and then the Persians would come in 539, and again and again and again they'd be invaded from the north. But in each of these, God says, listen, it will not last. In each of these, I will ensure that my people are secure forever. And this is the promise, that he will drive them into a parched and desolate land, and the stench and foul smell of them will rise up. Most of you, if you're like me, there's a desire for security. There's a desire for peace in our lives. We long for that in our homes. We long for it in our communities. When there is a sense of danger and we feel insecure or vulnerable, it lends itself to anxiety, to irrational thoughts, to sometimes decisions that are not in honor of God. The promise that God is saying here is that I will be your God and you will be secure, not only now, but for all eternity. And this is the extreme promise that he is making. No matter how difficult your life gets, no matter how many enemies are coming against you, it may be your boss, it may be your direct family, it may be your neighbor. No matter how severe that oppression becomes on the great day of the Lord, God, Christ our King, will come and He will drive every enemy away. Every one. Every enemy that has ever set Himself up against God from the beginning to the end. God will remove and drive out into the eternal abyss. Everyone. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41, God will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Every enemy, every power, every nation, every government, every demon, and Satan himself will be, listen, driven into a parched and desolate land. That is hell. Where their stench and foul smell will rise forever and ever. That's reminiscent of Revelation 14.11, is it not? Where the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Or Mark chapter 9, verse 48, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. God, your God in Jesus Christ will bring himself glory by providing for you security and peace eternally. Second thing that he'll do, he's going to glorify himself by bringing harmony back to his broken creation. Look at verse 21. Harmony to his creation. 
Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beast of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green, the trees bear its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. The sins of the people had brought the locust plague upon the land. It was devastated. Their crops, their vineyards, their livestock. As an agrarian people, this, this meant they could not have life. They could not feed their children. They could not tend to their livestock. They had no crops. But God says, when I come again, here's the picture. I'm going to bring back the right relationship between my creation and me, all of creation. The trees would bear fruit again. The pastures would provide food for the animals. The vineyards would yield their grapes once more. God, being jealous for his land, would restore his land, that being a picture of the new earth to come. Incredible. He would restore the land that was broken as a result of the consequences of their sins. It's our sins that have ruined this place. It's our sins. God says, I will restore it for my own glory and the well-being of my people. If you remember in the beginning, before the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, there was harmony. Harmony between God and man. Harmony between man and creation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And God saw everything that he made and behold, it was what? It was very good. No disharmony, no brokenness. God, man, and all of creation related together beautifully. But with the fall came disharmony. With the fall came the thistles, came the thorns. Paul made this clear in Romans 8.20. The creation was subjected to futility. The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Is this not our experience Are we not fighting amongst one another with our environment, environment against us, constant battles? But God says here, it's not always going to be like this. When Christ comes again in glory, he will restore. Revelation 22, here's a picture of it for you. The angel showed John the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Listen to this. Through the middle of the streets of the city, here's the new heaven and the new earth, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb of God will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. God, man, Creation in perfect harmony. That means, my beloved, no more sickness. Those of you who suffered the flu this season. No more broken bodies. No more disease. No more death. It means, very practically, those of you who are struggling to to make ends meet, to get food on the table, to pay your bills, no more struggling for the paycheck. No more two hours of a commute in a car. No longer trying to eke out a living to keep a roof over your head and food in your children's mouth and paying for college educations. No more. Not in the new heaven and the new earth. I at times will meditate on this and it both causes me to rejoice and then get a bit discouraged because I want want that now. 
Imagine living in the new creation when you can drive into the L.A. basin and see no smog. Or into Beijing. Or into Tehran. No smog. Imagine growing a lawn in your backyard with no weeds. No gophers to destroy your beautiful lawn or your flowers. Imagine no more dialogue about global warming or ozone layers because it'll be perfect. No more dog bites. No more bee stings. No more poison oak. No more flu vaccines. All products of the fall, all restored by God completely. When he returns, my beloved, he says, you will be safe forever and I will bring harmony to this broken creation. He gives us one more. I want you to listen and then rejoice over the over-the-top blessing that God promises us in the new heaven. Look at verse 23. He says, Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. Verse 26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has, dwelt, who has dealt wondrously with you. Be glad, O children of Zion, did you catch the order of operation here? It is amazing. He now talks about man. He started first talking about vegetation, then he talked about the beasts of the field, and now he talks about man. You said, that sounds like Genesis chapter 1. And you're right, because God here is recreating the broken creation. When he created it, it was very good. We broke it, and now he's going to recreate it. Vegetation, animals, people, all of it. And so what he's speaking of now is the perfection of this new creation, the perfection of the new heaven and the new earth. It too will be without sin as the garden was before the fall. The locust plague sent by God brought the drought, a drought that prohibited them from growing any more food. But he says, in the glory to come, listen, you will be glad and rejoice because he'll bring the early rains and the late rains, fall and spring, for the crops to grow perfectly. So much so that it will overflow. And he says, I'm going to use this to vindicate my name. By blessing you, I will bring glory back to my name. The granaries that were once barren will be overflowing. The cellars of wine and oil, once empty, will now be spilling over. In other words, God promises to provide all the provisions that man needs and more. As though the locusts had never come. The new earth. All your needs. All your needs met. Is that hard for you to imagine at this moment? Some of you came in here and you have you have debt on your mind. Some of you are, are struggling with the fact that you have medical bills that are piling up and you're still sick. In the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no such dialogue. 
there'll be no such concern. The provisions will be abundant. He says something in verse 25 that I, I, I wrestled with all week. I'm still wrestling with it because it's so, again, over the top. Look at verse 25. He says to the people of Judah, He will restore to them, to you, the years that the swarming locusts had eaten. One commentator, and I think he's right on on this, he said, No richer promise can be found in the Bible. And I read how, What is he seeing that I'm not seeing? Do you, ever, do you ever mourn for those years that have gone by that you wish you could go back and, and redo? You wish you could have a do-over. In golf, they call it a mulligan. I, I need like tens of thousands of mulligans. Maybe, like me, you didn't come to a saving grace until you were in your 20s or 30s or 40s. And you think to yourself, if I could go back and be raised and live in a, a gospel-centered church with brothers and sisters, all that time lost. Listen, friends. The Lord restores the years the locusts have eaten. He restores it all. Maybe you left school too early. Maybe you stayed in school too long. Maybe you spent much of your career doing that which you did not want to do, but you did it out of necessity. And if you could go back, you'd redo it. Maybe you declined a calling in your life to engage in a particular call to ministry or work or service. Maybe you rushed into a marriage that ended in divorce. Maybe you had a child out of wedlock. Maybe you had an abortion. Maybe. The Lord restores the years the locusts have eaten. Maybe you lost a lot of money in a risky investment. Or maybe you kick yourself because you didn't invest in Apple in 1989. Maybe you moved your family when you should not have. Or maybe you didn't move them when you should have. Maybe you waited too long to buy a house. And maybe you've lived as a lukewarm Christian for many years. And maybe you've made some catastrophic moral mistakes in your life that you could. If you could, you'd go back and you'd undo it. Maybe you have relationships in your past that you would like to undo or redo or never have at all. This promise, if real, is life-changing. I mean, at this moment, when we talk about paradigm shift, this should be it. God restores all the years the locusts have eaten. Everything lost is brought back. Every mistake is redeemed. Every lost hope, every lost dream, every mistake in relationship, God restores completely as though it never happened. Oh, my uh, this, if God gives back graciously and freely all who return to him in Christ, everything, everything you've ever lost, every lost opportunity, every mistake you wish you could undo, 
then listen. Living with regret as a Christian is not just bad, it is sinful. The Christians cannot live with regret. We can seek forgiveness, and we can restore and make things right, but we cannot dwell upon those things later, because if we do, we are refusing to believe this prophecy that God will, in fact, restore the years the locusts have eaten in your life. If you were to go into work tomorrow and you were to realize that you just lost your job, I mean, you go in and 30 minutes later, you're walking right back out again. I imagine for most of us, that would cause a bit of anxiety. What if you knew that morning walking in, before you were fired, that there were three other job opportunities, much better than the one you had? When your boss came to you and said, by the way, today's your last day, you're done in 30 minutes, you'd say, no problem. No problem. And you'd walk out with a skip in your step. If you are a dweller of the past, if you mull over and meditate on, especially in the wee hours of the night, all the things that you wish you could undo, you insult the redemption and the total restoration that Jesus Christ promises to bring to his bride, the church. Your future, listen, this is not hyperbole. Your future is infinitely more brilliant and bright than you could ever possibly imagine. The restoration of all the mistakes and all the, oh, if I only had, is going to be so glorious. You will look back upon those times and the times of worry and the times of regret and say, why did I even think about it? Whatever your sins are, whatever mess you have made, big or small, God says, I will restore it for my own glory. Oh, we're blessed in it. We're blessed in the restoration, but it's for his glory. It's so that the creation will see what he's done on our behalf and glorify his name. Look at verse 26 again. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has, dwelt, who has dealt wondrously with you. He brought destruction, now he brings restoration, and we will be satisfied in that forever. And listen, it'll have its right effect. Their forefathers had been blessed immeasurably by being brought into land flowing with milk and honey. And instead of worshiping God, they worshiped the gifts. They turned to idols. Instead of praising his name for being dealt wondrously with, they turned to the worship of paganism. But when God comes and he restores the heavens and the earth, that will never happen again. Never needing to worry about the things that bring the blessings that are so over the top will never ever lead to idolatry. We will be so satisfied in Jesus Christ that God can pour blessing upon blessing upon us and we will not refuse him. We will not worship an idol. We will not bow down to our work or our car or our retirement. Because we have God. And we will do what it says here. We will praise the name of the Lord because he has dealt and will deal wondrously with us forever and ever. The prayer of the sage in Proverbs 30 will not be a concern of ours. Listen, the sage says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, lest I, lest I be full and deny you and say who is the Lord, or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. No longer an issue. The sin of gluttony will not bind you. 
The sin of the fear of starving will not bind you. Total satisfaction in God and the blessings that he pours out. We will be satisfied through and through. And in that satisfaction, you will praise his name. For how long? Forever. When will you grow tired of it? Never. All right. So God says, I'm going to glorify my name in you by providing you security, by bringing harmony, and by blessing you with an abundance of all that you need and more. In other words, a pre-fall restoration on a scale unimaginable. We have no desire to go back to the Garden of Eden. That is not the biblical plan. When God brings heaven to earth, He will restore all of creation. The entire earth will become the Garden of Eden and God's presence will be with His people near and far. Safety, harmony, plenty, the very things you long for so much now, God says, I have given it to you in Christ and I will give it to you forever. She so said, all right, I, I, you need not say any more. This is sufficient. God's going to return. He's going to keep me safe. And I'm always afraid, so I like that. He's going to bring harmony in my relationship with my family and at work and with this creation that's broken. And I so long for that. And he's going to bless me with all the food and all the medical care and all the joy. So I'm good. You can stop. And I would. But the passage doesn't. Because, again, and this is how God does this, there's something better. You say, how could it get any better? It gets better. Look with me at the latter part, last line in verse 26 and 27. Point number three, he's going to dwell with us. He's going to be in our midst. My people shall never again be put to shame, latter part of verse 26, verse 27. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. He says it twice in two verses. You will never again be put to shame. This state, this final state that is consummated for God's people is permanent. No shame, no regret, no enemy. And it's all because we know God. The knowledge of God. Look at verse 27 again. You shall know what? That I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none other. This is the blessing. It is a thing that should excite you most. I fear it does not because you do not know him well. I, I fear that when you hear about security, you rejoice and, and the harmony, and you say yes, and the blessing, you say yes, but you do not rejoice as deeply as you ought with his presence remaining because we do not know him as we ought. It won't be the security or the harmony or the plentiful blessings. It won't be the life that you always wanted for eternity. The most glorious blessing that this passage promises us is the most glorious blessing. It is knowing God. It is knowing Him. Not knowing about Him, not coming to church and hearing things about Him, but knowing God intimately, personally. As our Lord Jesus was preparing for His death, in John chapter 17, do you remember what he said about this knowledge of God? 
Do you remember how he defined it? In praying to the Father, Jesus said in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they, the disciples, the church, know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is the greatest joy. This is the consummation of God bringing heaven to earth and reigning with his people. It is the pinnacle of ecstasy. Not your safety, not your harmony, not the provisions, not the restoration of the land, not the saints that we get to hang out with and commune with forever, not the relationships with them. The greatest joy, the lasting joy, is dwelling with God and knowing Him. Verse 27, three things we will know for certain in that day. He is in our midst, He is our God, and there is no one else, no other gods but Him. The people of Joel's day were likely saying, well, where is he now? We have been devastated by a locust plague. All we smell is death. Where is this God? I imagine many of you too, you question his presence at times, do you not? Especially when you're going through really difficult times and you're wondering, where is God now? Why isn't he here now? Why isn't he helping me now? How often do we live as though we do not belong to him in total, that he is our God, that he made us, that he owns us. And how often, my beloved, do we live as though we truly know him as the only true God? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, 4, we know that an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. But what, what do we do? We bow down to idols and we know better. We bow down to our work and our sports team and, and the entertainment industry. We know they cannot save us. We know they cannot sustain us. We know they did not create us and yet we worship them anyway. Not in the restored heavens and earth. Not then. Only then, a forever and ever increasing knowledge and wisdom of the one who loves you most. Forever and ever. In the garden before the fall, man communed with God and man knew God. There was no disharmony. There was no separation. There was no sin to break the relationship. And so in the garden, Adam and Eve were able to worship and glorify God perfectly before the fall. Sin entered creation and it wrecked that. Sin means that we cannot worship God rightly. But that's why Christ came, my beloved. Christ came so that he could live the life that you're supposed to live, worshiping God perfectly and then die the death that we're supposed to die as sinners in rebellion. And through this great work upon the cross, God is saying for all who repent and all who believe, who all, all who put their trust in my son Jesus Christ to save them, they will know me now and they will know me forever. There will be no command in heaven for God's people to worship him. They will be no need you will worship. You say, why? Because you will see him as he is. You will know him as he is. And you will want to do nothing else for all eternity than adore, worship, contemplate, and love the eternal God. 
It will be a knowledge of God that is all-encompassing, never failing, ever. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know, know fully, even as I have been fully known. The great Puritan preacher and author, John Owen, he dedicated his life to trying to communicate the truths of the word of God that people might know God. I would argue that John Owen was one of those men who knew God better than most. Listen to what he writes. You think you know God now. I know it sounds cliche, but we've seen, we haven't seen anything yet. Owen writes, we speak much of God. The truth is, we know very little of Him. We may love, honor, believe, and obey our Father, and there within He accepts our childish thoughts, for they are but childish. Like Moses, we see but His back parts. But these childish thoughts now, the pursuit of of God now, the word of God now, which tells us more and more about him. It is sufficient now. But when that day comes, you will realize you had just a glimpse. Spend your whole life studying God's word in community, in prayer, and you will grow to know God. But on that day when we see him, we will realize that we just approached him. We just tasted it. We just got a glimpse of his backside. His glory and his majesty and his brilliance and his power so much more infinitely beyond what we know now. And yet this is sufficient to captivate us. Is it not? It is sufficient. It is sufficient to keep us praying along the lines of King David. He prayed in Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing I have asked of the Lord, one thing, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Listen to this. Why? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple to know God. My beloved, I want the security that you want. I want the harmony in my life that you want. And I, I would love to have the blessings be so plentiful that the vats overflow. But infinitely beyond that, if we have any sense about us as Christians, we will want to know God now and more and more forever. This knowledge of Him is just the beginning. What a treat we have in store for us that you will spend all of eternity growing in the wisdom and knowledge of God, and in so doing, know Him more, and in so doing, be able to worship Him rightly. I'm going to close with this psalm. Listen. Psalm 130. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Church, hope in the Lord. 
For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem his church from all her iniquities. My beloved, if the Spirit of God has been gracious with us, then you have a heightened and better understanding of what to look forward to in Christ. If that does not excite you, if that does not convict you, if that does not compel you to leave this place sharing the gospel with the lost, if it does not cause you to open your book tonight and tomorrow and to read and to breathe in God, then you have not heard this passage. It is glorious, beyond measure, beyond description. I can't get close to it. But you can in Christ. You can hear God speak to you. You can know him more tonight than you did this morning. You can know him more tomorrow than you do today. And in knowing him, you will worship him. And in worshiping him, you will love him. Oh, satisfaction. Satisfaction beyond measure. Let's pray that for ourselves right now. That we would be a church that looks forward most to the coming of God in the glory of Christ to know him. Amen. Heavenly Father, we admit that our flesh still resonates more with security and harmony and blessings than it does with knowing you. And yet the Spirit testifies to our flesh that knowing you is infinitely better. That we can sustain hardship. We can go through times, Lord, where we do not feel secure, where we find ourselves vulnerable. We can go through times in our life, Lord, when there's disharmony in every area, in our homes, at work, in our communities. And we can go through our lives at times, Father, knowing that sometimes we won't be able to put food on the table and sometimes we won't be able to make ends meet. But if you remain with us, if we have you in Christ if we know you as sons and daughters, then it is sufficient. We want to be able to pray with all of our hearts what David prayed, that we ask for only one thing, that we may dwell in your house forever. Father, give us a better understanding of this blessing. Give us, Lord, a better picture of the new heavens and the new earth Give us a better picture of you that you might cultivate in our hearts an uncommon worship and an uncommon love and in this day and age an uncommon faith. I I praise you for this hope. It, It is truly over the top and yet I know it is true because you have said it. And so... Use this revelation to captivate us and change us to become the very people that we already are in Christ, sons and daughters of a king, awaiting a kingdom. We ask for this blessing upon our church here at Cambrian Park. I ask for that blessing upon all of the true churches here in San Jose, all of our brothers and sisters who have gathered this morning to worship you. I ask it to be upon the church throughout the world that you, being the cosmic God, would bless your universal church with this grand teaching. Encourage us to that end, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.